The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. We are taping Monday morning, and the Michigan State scandal that we had addressed a little bit last week with Chris Vanini has morphed into, from the horrific aspect of the Larry Nasser, the gymnastics doctor there, to now, through outside the lines reporting and some, some other reporting, has spread to... Tom Izzo, the basketball coach, and Mark D'Antonio's football program. And some of these allegations and sexual assault reports are go back about a decade. But it's a really volatile story. Here's uh, how quickly so- things change, Bruce. I uh, li- re-listened to our podcast from last week with Chris Vanini. And at one point I asked him, I, we, I mentioned how Mark Hollis's name, the ID, has not come up at all in any of this. And he's, he didn't seem to be remotely part of the story. And by Friday, he was announcing his retirement. Yeah. Well, I guess on Wednesday, ESPN really started digging in and pushing to get access to him. This story, that report, a series of reports that they were going to put out uh, on Friday and then over the weekend, that followed a couple hours after he had retired. And I think in which he said he wasn't running away from anything. But it clearly looks like he was. Now, he said he's going to cooperate with this, but he's going to have a lot of questions, I think, to answer. And he didn't. He wasn't able to answer any of those because, obviously, all this stuff came out after he had stepped down, and hurriedly so. We're going to talk to Nicole Auerbach, our guest. She works with Stu at The Athletic and uh, at The All-American in a bit. Uh, she's done some reporting on this. But in my mind, the, the most pertinent part of this is going to be going forward. What exactly was the coach's response when these things were alleged to have happened? And I think those are the, that's what we really don't know yet. The story moved fast. From Friday night, it was how Tom Izzo was handling it to Sunday at his post-game press conference. He was drilled with very specific questions. And I, quite honestly, I don't think he handled them well. And I, if I was a diehard Michigan State fan who was a big supporter of Tom Izzo, I would look at that going, I'm not sure. I don't feel comfortable that he's going to be the head coach much longer. It didn't. That, that was my read on it. Um, so do you think of the two, because I wrote a column Friday, and again, this was all happening very fast, but given all these new incidents coming to light with Michigan State football and all the firestorm that's already taking place in East Lansing, that Mark D'Antonio's job may be in trouble. But that was before the... Sunday Izzo press conference that you're talking about. You think Izzo, Hall of, future Hall of Fame, college basketball coach, national champion, is in more danger than D'Antonio? I do. D'Antonio gave his statement and answered a couple of questions. And yeah, there's some area where I think he's gonna, you know, he's gonna probably need to give more explanation for. But he was pretty stern in what he said. Now, if it's proven that what he said isn't accurate, that's a different story. 
But with, with Izzo, you know, he was talking about Travis Walton and there were questions about, you know, what happened to him. And he didn't have what sounded like real answers. So interestingly, um, on, on I think Sunday night, Brenda Tracy, we all know who that is, retweeted Paula Levine's recap of what Izzo said Sunday. And this is what Brenda Tracy said on Twitter. I spent an hour on the phone with Izzo last April discussing me possibly working with his team. His rhetoric was full of victim blaming. It was upsetting to say the least. I don't even think he realized how bad it was. I hope he's sincere when he says he now stands with survivors. That doesn't help his cause at all. Oh, she followed up. For the record, we did not talk about specific cases. Our discussion was a general one. But I firmly believe his attitude and beliefs regarding consent, victims lying, and placing the onus on women did and would contribute to a culture that dismisses survivors and protects players. You know, you and I have talked about it offline. I think I think a lot of coaches just don't know how to handle these situations. And But given what's happened at Baylor, given what's happening here, the day of reckoning is here. You you have to start treating this the way you're supposed to in 2018, or even somebody as revered as Tom Izzo suddenly is you know being questioned. Yeah, look, you and I have talked about some instances we've seen that have been published and documented about you know legendary coaches and their handling in this very kind of situation would be seen as so reprehensible now that those coaches would have been fired and exiled. Yeah. And so I think what you're seeing is a, is a coach who has a long history and some of the behavior and some of the people around him is really dubious and how he handled it um, is not going to pass the smell test now. By the way, you mentioned the Brenda Tracy thing. One other thing I saw this morning, and it was something Dan Wolken from USA Today had retweeted, and it was about the Travis Walton case and, and Izzo's not – you know, lack of clarity on what was going on with him. And somebody had found the Michigan insider, I guess this, this blog had found a, a article from Lima, Ohio. Uh, Walton moved into Izzo's basement and spent the year completing his degree there. So, you know, he obviously had an, you know, I mean, it just seems. And he said, and to be clear at the press conference, the outside the lines reporter asked, why did he end up leaving the program? And he said, I don't remember. If he was living in his basement, I'm sure he remembers. Yeah, and it's not like he, you're a football coach where you have a hundred guys, and this is one of the random, you know, it's the it was a third team linebacker. You know, yeah. this was a former captain of his team. It was a guy who had, uh, you know, been a student assistant. I, I just it just seems a little skeptical. But anyway, okay, well, much more on this story. Yeah. Let's let's get to Nicole in the interview. All right, we bring back onto the podcast our friend Nicole Auerbach from the All American, and somebody who has been following the Michigan State story very closely, and in fact had a report on Friday night that kind of took off and gained a lot of traction. But I don't know. Let's start. Where do you want to start, Bruce? Let's let's start with that. So you know, as the story kind of heated up as a as it kind of morphed from just the Larry Nasser component in Michigan State. To then on Friday, Mark Hollis, the AD there, longtime AD, resigns slash retires. And then a couple hours later, Outside the Lines comes out with a pretty damning series of reports that I don't know if I would say they necessarily implicate the basketball coach, Tom Izzo, and Mark D'Antonio, the football coach. But it really looked bad, especially in the, in the face of how this played out um, with some 
some sexual violence cases dating back to 2008, 9, 10, and as far as how these things were handled, especially just to set the scene a little bit, especially in the face of Michigan State is not going to get the benefit of the doubt, in especially how it handled the Larry Nasser case. There was a lot of administrative failures. They also tried to block ESPN on some measures of transparency. So with that as a backdrop, let's set up to Nicole, your your report that I guess came later Friday afternoon, Friday night, as it gets into Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, who's certainly not somebody who wears the white hat when it comes to a lot of people's perception of how these things get handled with NCAA justice. Yeah. So basically you have, as you mentioned, the scandal is kind of now going into other areas within the athletic department. And the theme that I keep coming back to is just inaction. You know, it doesn't seem, and we don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like, you know, there's this malicious intent to cover up or to impede investigations, but no one's acting in ways that could have prevented this sexual assault or sexual violence from happening afterwards. And and especially, you know, there's a lot of uproar about the school not punishing or the athletic department, these coaches not punishing some of this behavior, even if it wasn't criminally charged. So, you know, I, I was talking to a victim rights advocate, um, Kathy Redman, who is the founder of the National Coalition Against Violent Athletes, and she's always well connected with victims and survivors in 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 college sports and also in the in in the pros. And she's just, you know, very plugged in in this world. And she tells me right off the bat, you know, I met with Mark Emmert a couple months into his job in 2010. I sent him letters. I specifically emphasized Michigan State's number of reported uh, sexual assault cases. And what I was alarmed at, this was right on the heels of the Keith Appling and Adrian Payne sexual assault case. And I, I was in Michigan at the time, and there was a lot of, there were on-campus protests, and there was a lot of outrage at the time that there was no punishment from the school or from the athletic department, even after they weren't charged in that case. So she was feeling that as well. And she went to go see Mark Emmert and talk to him about all of the different ways that they could change sexual assault policies and reporting procedures across college sports and just different ideas of how to, how to make this a better system for the victims and just, you know, a more accountable process, more transparent process. So they went over that sort of thing. And, you know, she's been an advocate of, of changes to policy for, for years. And then she brought up Michigan State as a specific example because she was con- concerned about then Mich- Michigan State President Luana K. Simon, who resigned last week, um, and, and her and the school's inaction in response to these reports. So it wasn't secret information. It was combing through media reports to figure out what the number was. It was 37 cases of sexual assault in the previous two years. And then she emphasized this in a follow-up letter, um, using Michigan State as an example of a place that she was concerned about and, you know, get on his radar. And, you know, from what we've seen so far from what, you know, Mark Emmert pushed back on, he he didn't deny that they didn't, I, I don't think that they went in, that I don't think he talked to Luana Simon. You know, we can ask him more specifically that at some point when, when we have access to him. But, you know, it's, it's just alarming because in so many of these cases here at Michigan State, there were people who were alerted to like, who were given a heads up, said, hey, look here, like do something here. And, and nobody did. And the NCAA likes to present itself as this moral authority and is now going into Michigan State in light of the Nasser stuff. And it, it's, you know, it, it had an opportunity to be like, hey, here's a heads up, 37, this is an alarming number. 
talk to Luana Sign. Thirty-seven. Go in that, now. Thirty-seven in two years from like, I mean, what are there? There are fourteen players on a basketball team. There's a hundred on a football team. What else are we including in this? Like, well, it's 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 any team, all the teams, anyone in the athletic it, department. It, it was student athletes. It wasn't just regular yes. students. Yes. That yes. That seems and like a mind-boggling number in two years. Yeah, and, and, and the numbers were found because, so Kathy went into this meeting um, with a lawyer who's also very involved in victim rights, and and she and her students had combed through media reports to find that number. These were, this was not a secret. These were reported allegations of sexual assault, and to date at that point in the meeting, that there was no repercussions or punishment from anyone at the university. And so, you know, there, there were some that were in the in the, the criminal system and going through the process. There were some with Title IX investigations, but it's just, it's so frustrating. And she gave me a comparable number at a different school, which was 26 over that two years, which is still way too many. But, but that is an alarming number. And the reason she highlighted it be, was because Luana Simon was on the Board of Governors at the time and, and was in a position of power within the NCAA structure. So, you know, it, it, it's very alarming. And you would hope that if they wanted to get involved in, in moral issues and safety issues with their student athletes, that, you know, if someone tips you off and says, here's a really alarming number, and these are all published reports, so there's potentially even more here that you should look at, that someone would listen. So right now, the, the, this has shifted to, to become a Tom Izzo, Mark D'Antonio-related story. I mean, those are much more recognizable faces, certainly for our audience, but in general, Izzo's an iconic men's basketball coach. And I think, to me, my biggest kind of wow factor with with the story as Outside the Lines reported it, especially as the story developed over the weekend, was the part about Travis Walton. And again, this mm-hmm. is a, primarily a football podcast, so I'll set it this way, was he was a former captain of the team, uh, went to a Final Four, and then in 2010 stayed on as a, as a student assistant. He's had some horrific charges against him, including, as Outside the Lines had detailed, including talking to a woman who worked in the Title IX office at Michigan State, as well as the alleged victim who he punched in the face, a female at a bar one night. The fact that it looks really bad that as he had been charged with assault and battery, and as this was going through the justice system, he was still able to stay on the stay with the program and, and coach. And you know Tom Izzo, you've covered him, you, you do a lot more college basketball certainly than Stu and I do. One, where do you think this is headed? Two, do you think he's going to survive this? And how is this, like, this is in the middle of the season. This is going to be playing out every time I imagine he goes to do a post-game interview or does, has a game, correct? Yeah, I think that that's why the heat is on Tom Izzo more so than Mark D'Antonio, at least it feels like right now. Because Tom Izzo is going to be at a podium every two days or so at the at the least. And he's going to be talking about this. And I think we do really need answers about what he was told what his reactions were and why he continued to let Travis Walton represent Michigan State University and by extension him during this period. And I think that's what's frustrating also about some of the um, the previously unreported cases related to the football program is that you could suspend people or at least make sure that they're withheld from competition or practice, whatever it is, while 
these, while the justice system and the legal system are playing out or while Title IX investigations are happening on campus and to do nothing and just eventually go, if the charges are dropped or there are no charges made, we can all move on. That That's what's really frustrating to people because they want people to be accountable for their bad actions. And they know that it depends on like a prosecutor who decides to pursue a case, even though in the Keith Appling, Adrian Payne situation, there was enough there and it looked like it could have been a very strong case and the prosecutor declined. So there's so many different moving pieces here and everyone understands that. So they want to see what the action was when these coaches were told. So I think Izzo does have to answer very specifically about that because like I mentioned earlier, Appling and Payne, people knew about it and were frustrated when it happened. This is new information. This is someone he was putting on his staff and you know, people use that phrase, they're loyal to a fault. That is Tom Izzo. This is a guy he recruited, played for him for four years. And I could see him sticking his neck out for this guy and letting the justice system go down its path as it was happening. But we need to know now what actually was he doing? What actually was he thinking? And, you know, I I think it's too soon to tell anything about everyone else's job security moving forward. And there could plenty there could be more information that comes out about both programs or throughout the athletic department. But we need some more transparency and answers from both coaches, but especially Tom Izzo on the Walton front, because that was someone he brought onto his staff and he let him be on the bench during this period. All right, so this is a football podcast. Let's talk about the Michigan State football part of this outside the line story. I don't know that there was an equivalent to the Travis Walton incident that's listed in here in terms of just, uh, oh my gosh, how could he possibly have been still with the program? But it did detail... Uh, at least 16 incidents since 2007 involving football players accused of sexual assault or violence against women. We knew about what happened last year. Four players ended up getting dismissed in, involving two separate incidents. That was that was public, and and very and you know everybody saw how Mark D'Antonio handled that. But the other ones listed in here had somehow never made it to the public. So Bruce and I talked about this when Baylor was happening. How. What, what compounded the, the PR nightmare there was all of it coming out at once. If these incidents listed in this story had come out at the time that they did, I don't know that anybody's doing a bombshell report right now. But for it to all come out at once, and for the insinuation that, I mean, the fact that they the school itself kept trying to block ESPN from getting these records, and in fact preemptively suing them at one point, just leads to the perception that they're trying to cover something up. They're trying to hide something. There is no insinuation in the article that Mark D'Antonio was covering anything up like Mark Bryles was accused of. But at the end of the day, I just feel like this is the worst possible timing, obviously, for this to come out for him. He had a brief press conference Friday night in which he said, I've always handled everything basically by the book, and then took a couple quick brief questions. And I think the number one question, right, Nicole, would be much like what you said with Izzo, you had all these football players accused of these violent crimes, were any of them ever suspended or held out of competition? Or did they just wait to see if charges were filed or not? Right. And I also think that Mark D'Antonio needs to really answer for his off-season comments last year, when by all accounts, he actually handled his situation correctly with when they had players accused of sexual assault um, and charged with it. And they were dismissed from the program. It was handled appropriately. There was an internal investigation into it, and it was found that he acted appropriately. So at the time, afterwards, he said, this is the first time our football program has dealt with allegations of sexual assault in a case like this. And I think he needs to answer for why he said that, because it's obviously not true. 
And I think that that's the most important thing that I would like to hear from him, because if you have this pattern, even if they're not charged or charges are dropped or whatever it is, and there isn't a criminal case involved with these people, there's still a pattern here. And so what are you doing to combat that? How have they been trying to, or have they at all been trying to educate their players on how to treat women, how to be a bystander that intervenes if someone's doing something inappropriate? I mean, there's been a lot of education, as you guys both know, over these last few years, you know, with, with Brenda Tracy going to a lot of schools, Kathy Redmond does them as well. And, you know, people are really trying to educate these guys. And, and instead, you have a series of instances that we didn't know about. And you're right, because they all come at once and we didn't know about them as they happened. It does seem like, wow, this is a pattern that was trying to be hidden or what have you. But I would like to know why he said what he said last year. I would like to know if anything changed in the way he handled each of these cases. I would like to know a lot from Mark D'Antonio. And like I said, I think because he's in the off season and he doesn't have press conferences every two days, we may not get answers for a while. He may be able to lay low here, but I'm concerned about multiple things there. And and I do think um, you know he has a lot of answers to, to give us too, because in the outside the line report, that was kind of what was missing. It was kind of what was his knowledge and response to each of these individual cases. And it was so hard for them to get the information from Michigan State. I understand that I'm sure they were trying to get that piece and just weren't able to. To me, the most interesting part of this is going to be outside the lines that talked to this woman. I think her name is Lauren Alswade. She's a former Michigan State sexual assault counselor, left this university in 2015 over frustrations about how administrators handled sexual assault cases. So how much was on administrative failure and what role if any did the coaches have a following protocol and i think i had referenced this the other day where i think sometimes we're looking at things through the prism in 2018 when they happened in 2008 9 10 when some of these protocols either now it's how were they handled how well were they put in place did they follow them I think schools have learned a lot in the time since this Penn State scandal. I think they've learned a lot in the time since since Baylor. But were, what was their role in that? And I think those are fair questions that are going to get asked, especially, like I said, with her going out on the record and, and making these allegations from the inside where she would know and probably may have a uh, – have a track record of what is going on there and and we'll see to ask you both i mean this is a bigger i think this is bigger than michigan state at this point do you where do you think this is gonna be for the story as you know this is falls into the category of how these things are reported but also we've seen more education on this i, I my point is you know baylor is baylor penn state was penn state i think michigan state is going to go in a little bit different direction because it's because it may be more indicative of some of the problems we've had across you know across college athletics because Penn State there were no athletes involved it was all Jerry Sandusky an administrator failure Baylor was had some similarity to this but I thought it was kind of unique to this I mean do you agree with that or do you think I'm going in a different direction I think I think it's it's definitely different it has elements of 
multiple things because you have Larry Nasser and you have the ability that he had to have access to female athletes, which I think is if the NCAA is able to find a way to get in here, I think that that might be one of them, um, one of the avenues for them. So you have this element of a monster who is just systematically preying on these these women who are coming to him for medical uh, purposes. And so that's a separate thing, although it pairs well with what we're seeing with football and basketball in that people who were alerted to bad behavior or who were aware that there was a pattern of not punishing bad behavior just allowed things to continue to happen. And it's, it's, it's the, it keep going back to that word inaction, because I think in some of the other cases in Penn state, in Baylor, I think there was more of an intent to deceive and intent to hide certain information or police helping certain athletes accused of crimes or alerting, alerting coaches. And there, there were different elements at play. And here it's just that there were opportunities to stop really horrific behavior and people didn't. And Larry Nasser continued to see patients while he was under investigation at Michigan State, for example, or that these athletes didn't face any internal punishment, uh, as so far as we know, after being accused of sexual assault and rape. And I think that that's what's hopefully people will take from this at other schools, other places, is that you don't have to be malicious about it. You don't have to be actively covering something up for it to be really bad. The effect is the same if you don't take action. And so, you know, I think that people at other schools or people who work in college athletics take and learn stuff from each of these. And, you know, hopefully this would also lead to a different way of handling these situations. I mean, it's still so hard for universities and Title IX offices and athletic departments to handle these really serious criminal acts. And so, you know, we we do need to change the system. There's a lot that needs to be put in place. But I think you can see with this in particular, and because it hits so many different areas, that this is systemic and it's a problem on so many different layers in so many different areas of the university and athletics for these victims and survivors to get what they need or to be taken seriously, to be, even if they do all the right things, they report all the right things. For, for there to be a fair system of letting them try to get justice for what happened to them, it's so hard. And so I think you're seeing multiple things with that. You're seeing that it's it's these universities and athletic departments are not set up well to deal with this stuff. And you're seeing that in, in all of these cases, there have been people who could have put a stop to it, people who could have looked into bad behavior sooner and saved women who, who are now victims and survivors. And, and so I think that even without the malicious intent, you're seeing that people are being held accountable for what's happened there. And that is hopefully something that is different here than wasn't in other places and can be used more broadly. Well, it'll be interesting to keep watching this story develop. I mean, heck, it, it changed quite a bit in the week since we had um, Michigan State grad Chris Benini on here just last Monday, and Bruce asked him a couple questions about Nasser. And we had no idea it would obviously head into this direction of uh, Michigan State football and basketball now being under the microscope. Nicole, anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, well, we're, we're continuing to cover this over at The Athletic. Katie Strang and Brendan Quinn have been doing excellent work from Detroit. Um, and we'll continue to be on it, both football, both basketball, both athletic department, NCAA-wide angles. So uh, give us a check. Check us out on theathletic.com. All right, thanks to Nicole for joining us. And before we get to our mailbag, Stu, on Saturday I went to memorial service for 
Tyler Holinsky, who's the late Washington State quarterback who died from an apparent suicide. I got to say, it was it was such a heartbreaking scene. You had most of his teammates from Washington State, many of his teammates from high school. You had a lot of people from the Southern California football community. I mean, you had I, you know I know Josh Rosen was there. I saw Chip Kelly there. Lots of other people there, and I I think hearing from first from his godmother and then from both his younger and older brother was just really really sobering because i kept on you're looking at the you know the program that you're handed out and it's his you know his smiling face it looks like it's probably from a media guide photo and you're thinking this kid was about to become the starting quarterback at washington state he'd already had some success there He's probably, you know, you're thinking how this is going to play out. I know from talking to Leach, they thought he's, you know, as talented, if not more talented than Luke Falk, who'd been a prolific passer there. And his life is about to take it, you know, everything he'd worked for. And they showed these videos of him and his brothers. And it's from the time they were kids and just the, it looked like the all American family. And you see this and you're thinking, man, this kid's life is about to, like, you think, a lot of his dreams are about to become realized. You know, all the work and all the time he spent preparing for this and everything from the Little League football to now. And he's on the cusp of it. And at that moment, you know, something, and his grandmother, or his godmother, excuse me, put this this way, something was not right with him and nobody knew it. And it was so, so powerful that, you know, it took his life. And to me, it was just just so heartbreaking and and sad for that. And I can I can't imagine what that family has been dealing with, and also a lot of his friends knowing, you know, was there something we could have talked about with him that would have triggered him to open up about some of these issues? And I know you and I talked about the the power of depression, and and it's a uh, it's in some corners it's a taboo subject for a lot of people, and just you just hope something positive can come from this. Chuck Culpepper from the Washington Post was there. He is, in my opinion, arguably the greatest sports writer in America, at least the, the greatest sports writer who, who kind of covers our beats. And he set the scene this way, and it's kind of chilling. Beneath the San Gabriel Mountains in an unmistakable American gymnasium, with the bleachers brightly green and yellow, the basketball hoops folded up familiar, familiarly toward the ceiling, and the hanging banners telling of bygone happy championships, they're gathered Saturday about 800 human hearts in many states of brokenness. I don't know. It just sounded... Reading the story was very sad. I can't even imagine what it was like to be there in person. Yeah, just you're looking at all these, quite honestly, unfamiliar faces. I mean, I I was up high in the rafters there. You know, I saw a lot of people afterwards. But so I was sitting around people I didn't know. And lots of, you know, look like high school kids, maybe college-age kids. And lots of folks from their church. And it just, you know, it's just, it's really as mind-boggling to see. Because, again, in our society, everything seems, again, seems like this kid would have everything. Loving family. I mean, hearing from his brothers was really powerful. Uh, hearing from his other family members uh, was loved by his teammates. You know, I know Leach had told me at one point, this kid was the most upbeat kid I've ever coached. And you look at him, I mean, you know, it just, again, it just, you know, I got to admit, like, I've been to memorial services before, especially for 
some people who are, you know, younger than when you think something would happen, but there seems to be more of a, like, I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to, those people are ever going to find out, you know, have any more answers to what happened. And, you know, you just, like I said, you just hope that this subject gets more attention and gets more into the mainstream. And, and if there is taboo, if it is a taboo subject for a lot of people that they don't feel as uncomfortable. I know talking to somebody I knew at the memorial service afterwards, this person who's a little younger than me had told me he too, when he was in college had suffered from, I don't know if I would call it severe depression, but he told me he couldn't get out of bed for days. And, you know, it just, his thing was the same thing that was discussed at the service with Tyler's family was he didn't want to be a burden on people to tell them what was, what was bothering him. And I just think it's important to listen to people, you know, and, and just to be there and be supportive for them if you can. Cause you know, one thing the world needs a lot more of is compassion. And, and I feel like just from what you see in, you know, in our world, it seems to be, we're getting less of it because it just seems like it's to be a much, much colder world. Cause that's what often gets shown. And that's what the sides we often see. So these have been two extremely serious subjects that we've talked about so far this podcast. I have no good way to do this, but I'm going to transition to some college football questions that you guys asked this week in the mailbag. And as always, you can send those emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This first one is from Joshua Fiery. Okay, Bruce, with Bob Stoops' strange retirement date last year, Lincoln Riley was forced to leave the Oklahoma coaching staff untouched last year except for hiring Ruffin McNeil. Do you think he will make any changes this year? Can Sooner fans finally find freedom from Mike Stoops? So, I mean, look, he did make one pretty significant change in bringing in Shane Beamer from Georgia, but this seems to be more of a, is he going to fire Mike Stoops question? Yeah, I don't, at this point, I, I think Mike Stoops will be there. If they didn't make a change by now, I don't think that there'll be a difference there. I mean, I will say they did one, there was one big change and it was going from Jerry Schmidt, who had left. He was Bob Soup's longtime strength coach, to bring in Benny Wiley, who had worked with a lot Riley and a few other people on the staff from Texas Tech. I do think that's a difference because that set helps change the culture of the day to day of the program. But in terms of Saturdays on the field and defensive play caller, and I don't know, it's a it's an interesting dynamic, just because obviously. Bob Stoops had had been such a played such an influential role in Lincoln Riley, not just getting to Oklahoma, but even getting the job. Right. So, and and know. Bob is still very much around that program. He was right there on the sideline, like right behind Lincoln Riley at the Rose Bowl. So, that's a tough, tough situation. That even if Lincoln Riley felt like, well, we we need to make a change, defense isn't good. Certainly wasn't good in the Rose Bowl. How do you go about that? You're probably going to damage your relationship with Bob forever. Yeah, I, I think if, if and I don't know this to be sh- the case, but if Lincoln Riley were to have a new defensive coordinator, I would think the best case scenario for him would be for somebody else to hire Mike Stoops away, sure. not for him to have to make that decision, because that would be thorny, to say the least. Derek asks us, Stu and Bruce, why hasn't Wisconsin been able to recruit a high-profile QB or transfer QB since Russell Wilson? Did the, quote, big camp QBs not want to play in the cold weather? It seems like many of these guys would rather be a fifth string at LSU than go to a northern school. 
I don't think you know, it's northern. A, yeah, I mean, there's look. There was a few guys. I mean, Bart Houston was actually like I think a four star kid. They had a four star dual threat quarterback two years ago. I went and actually looked back at this just to do some research to, uh, about the cold weather QBs since 2013. I'm going to rattle off some names, and you tell me if you think this fits cold weather. Christian Hackenberg, the number two quarterback in the country, went to Penn State. That's certainly a cold weather place. That year, Shane Morris was number three. He went to Michigan, certainly cold weather places. JT Barrett, number 10, went to Ohio State. Malik Zaire went to Notre Dame. The next year, Clayton Thorson was number 13. He went to your alma mater. Brandon Winbush was number five. He went to Notre Dame. Yeah, Zach it's really Jones. not about cold yeah, weather. It's there's more about Wisconsin and the fact that for all of the Badgers' success, and they've been you know nationally prominent here for a while now, they're still not a program that generally recruits the four- and the five-star kids. Now, Chantel Jennings from our staff just pointed out to me this weekend that they're off to a great start for 2019. They have more four-star kids committed already in 2019 than they had in all of the past all than in any of their last three classes, I believe. And well, makes getting sense. back to the quarterbacks, Stu. Yeah. Do you think it's because kids see and go, okay, they don't throw it that much? Because it's, I mean, you know of running backs who go there now. Sure. Now, Jonathan Taylor wasn't a four-star running back, but he's obviously turned out to be a heck of a running back, but. I mean, what do you think? It, what do you think it is? Do you think it's because they don't throw it traditionally as much? Probably. I mean, Russell Wilson had that one year, but outside of that, it's been some pretty. It's been the John Stockos and Joel Staves. I mean, it's not a place that has churned out star quarterbacks. So maybe that turns some kids away. But at the end of the day, they have put guys into the NFL. Scott Tolzien is in the NFL or was in the NFL. I'm not sure what his status is right now. Um, just uh, to support that. In the last five years, just in pass attempts, they ranked in the conference 11th, 12th, 7th, 13th, and then this past year they ranked 11th. So I think it may come back to, you know, kids want to typically want to go somewhere they throw the ball a lot. Yeah, although to his point, that doesn't explain why they're still signing with LSU. No, but I think LSU is recruiting on a, on a little bit of a different level um, across the board. Our friend Jason Garluski from Columbia, South Carolina, makes his triumphant return. He says, Bruce and Stewart, great podcast as always. As a Florida fan, I'm thrilled with the Dan Mullen hire. I think Chip Kelly at Florida would have resembled Charlie Weiss at Florida. Why? I don't know the foggiest idea. What would the two of them have in common? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That being said. One, guy, one guy's proven he can coach in college football, and the other guy had proven he cannot coach in college football. There you go. But, you know. Apparently, Jason wanted Dan Mullen instead, and that's fine. But that being said, when Florida was looking for a head coach in 2010 and 2014, one of the first names mentioned was Dan Mullen. Do you guys know how seriously Florida considered Mullen in those years? And if Florida didn't want or couldn't get Mullen in 2014, what changed to make him the hire in 2017? Uh, you know what? I know, I know more about the Miami stuff because I know he interviewed on two separate occasions with two separate ADs during two different searches there. He did not interview well. My guess is I had heard that Jeremy Foley was not a huge Dan Mullen fan, and that might have been part of it. So, again, I, I, I don't know exactly how serious they were then. You know, because coming off 2014, that was Dan Mullen's best year. They finished 12th in the country. You know, they were 10-3. and three. If you were going to think that would have been a time to make a move, that would have been it. But Yeah, the rumor, and I don't know if it's 
ever been proven or not, the rumor was always that Jeremy Foley was not a fan of his from when he was the offensive coordinator there under Urban Meyer. And, of course, uh, Scott Strickland comes. What's the difference in 2017? Foley retires. Scott Strickland comes in. Scott Strickland was his AD at Mississippi State and obviously felt comfortable bringing him on board there. While we're on, while we're on this, UF, I want to put you out on a limb here. Dan Mullen will win the SECs within three years, yes or no? No, because Nick Saban's still in the SEC. SEC East. East. Oh, yes. I think he will win the SEC East okay. in the next three years. Okay. And I think that if he plays Alabama in the championship game, it'll be a much closer game than Jim McElwain was able to give him in those two meetings. Uh, Stu, you are a former musician of some note. Mm-hmm. This is true. This question from John M. in Fort Worth, Texas. Which is your favorite marching band and why? That's a great question. And by the way, I'm definitely pro-marching band. I am glad that in the national championship game, they let the Georgia and Alabama bands play on the field while the Kendrick Lamar concert took place on TV from somewhere else in Atlanta. You know, it's hard, to, it's hard for me to go with anybody but the Ohio State marching band because, first of all, the script Ohio is such a fantastic tradition, the dotting of the I. They've also just gotten really ambitious with their programs in the last couple of years to the point where you've seen them. It's not often you see these, these marching band halftime performances go viral on YouTube, but a couple of their more ambitious ones did. So I'll go with the band that refers to themselves, or maybe the school refers to them, as the best damn band in the land. What about you? I don't know. I feel like I need to say that, like the Marching 100, that's FAMU's band. I think there are, more people come for the band than they often did for the games to see them. I yeah. mean, they're kind of like uh, legendary in what they do, and people can YouTube it and see kind of their performances. It's different. I, I think, uh, you know, I think Ohio State's is great for a lot of the reasons what you said, you know, in terms of some of the some of the formation stuff was really cool to see. The so. best band, college band I've seen was not a marching band, but a pep band, and that was VCU's when I covered a couple of their NCAA tournament, including the one where they made the run to the Final Four. VCU's, you know, the band that plays at the basketball games, mm-hmm. just takes over the arena. Like, the whole arena, whether you're rooting for VCU or not, is dancing and, and singing along with the VCU band. It's really an impressive thing to see. Least favorite mascots, do You caught me off guard with that one. I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Do you, have, you got me thinking you have about, a least like, favorite mascot? basketball games. Oh, well, it must be somebody from, from a basketball school, then. No, not really. Come on. You can you can answer somebody. I, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't have a least favorite mascot. I have a I have a favorite mascot. Otto the Orange. Purdue Pete. Purdue Pete. Pete. I always thought Purdue Pete looked just like Gene Cady. He does look just like Gene Cady, and it can be a little creepy at times. I'm a little biased though. My I had a roommate when I lived in Atlanta way back, like maybe a year out of college, named Brian Crane, and he had been Purdue Pete in college and he still had the the head so i got a lot of purdue pete stories and but still like he's pretty very cool and personable oh i know who you're I, gonna say you probably love the west virginia mascot no you know what <laughs> i got some stories about the, uh, the mountaineer from a couple of times but i don't want to get into it here but um i had a friend who was a mascot at a school also wore the hat and wore the head headgear and he had told me of a uh, x-rated story when he was in college that he had to uh 
for one time he had to make sure he wore the headgear for this one specific thing he did. Jeez. Um, How about that's so. a, that's a heck of a story to tease. Do we have to release like a NC seventeen version of the podcast where you can no, tell the story? No. I, and I can't say much more about it because people know I know this guy and he still works in the business, sort of. So. All right. Well, everybody out there can start <laughs> connecting the dots. We got some other good questions, but we've run out of time. So why don't I save those for next week? But as always. Can we answer one? Can we answer one more? What's one more? Joe Simmons' question. Let's ask this. Okay. I, like this I like this question. Joe Simmons, during the Tennessee coaching search, you both alluded to the term fishbowl school where the media scrutiny would be extremely high with your knowledge of the national landscape, what would you consider to be a top five or so fishbowl school in the country? I, just to clarify, Stu, I, this is how I would define it, as this person is more visible and more important to many people than the governor. Well, that's interesting because you could argue that USC is a fishbowl because they have... I would say it is not. But it's not, by your definition, it's not. Clay Helton no. can come and go as he pleases in yeah. L.A., my, I have five my point six. was more that USC gets covered a little bit like an NFL team. But anyway, okay, go ahead. Give us your fishbowl school. I'm not sure this is the order I would have it in, but uh, Tennessee is definitely there for me. Alabama, Auburn, Ohio State. And the other two I would put were Notre Dame and Penn State. Now, you can say Florida or LSU is in there, but you know you could say most of the SEC schools, to be honest. You'd, I, think anybody you left else out, you'd I think you left one out. Texas. Where you are literally a reality show host every day. Yeah, I think there's some of that. Maybe it's just from seeing Charlie Strong, and it was probably muted a little bit. And I'm not sure. I don't know how how hot it's gotten with Tom Herman. How was it muted with Charlie Strong? Every day of his coaching tenure over the last two years was a referendum on his job. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, I just don't feel like Tom Herman is 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 getting as visible as some of these other coaches would be in the state. And I could be, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think that the spotlight has gotten off of waned waned because Texas has been so bad now for so long. Like when there becomes a point where you've been so mediocre and irrelevant, but Tennessee has been, Tennessee's even been even worse, but they create, yeah, no, but they create their own fishbowl there with the stuff they do. Texas. And look like Tom Herman wasn't uh, exactly an anonymous figure going into the season. I just think that, his first season, they were a 500 team. There just wasn't much reason to pay attention to Texas. If they, either way, it'll return to that being that way. Either because he turns them around and they become a national power again, or because, just like Charlie Strong, he keeps going six and six, and it becomes a referendum on his job. Hmm. All right. Well, I've held you one question longer than you wanted to be held. So thank you for joining us on the Audible today, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. I'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All-American. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and you'll get... 20% off of his annual subscription and if you aren't following us on Twitter already you can do so Bruce is Bruce Feldman CFB and Stu is SL Mandel see you next time get over here. Ah, yeah. whoa, whoa. talk about